When you first got to varsity, who was the first person to kick your butt? Or what was the welcome to varsity moment when you realized this was a whole different level of competition? Man, this is a great question, uh, Coach. I actually, I knew the answer to this, but I could not remember this guy's name. And me being kind of the dork that I am, I actually drove to my parents' house yesterday. I got, I found in these boxes, this old Dave Campbell's Texas football magazine from the year 2000. It's got Cedric Benson, uh, rest in peace, on the front of it when he's running at Midland Lee. And yeah. uh, I went back and looked. We were playing the Clear Lake Falcons. We're playing at Veterans Memorial Stadium in League City. And I clearly remember this. It was my first year on varsity. I was a junior. I was a kid that was a pretty late bloomer. You know, I was freshman A team, but basically I played like JVB. I played sophomore team as a sophomore, so basically junior varsity B. I was not on the varsity in fall camp my junior year. I was practicing with the JV. You know, some injuries happened. And so long story short, I, I made the varsity for the first game, but I was not a starter. And so I was brought in sometime in the second half. And I remember just, I, I played quick tackle. So I was a tackle away from the tight end. So I'm the guy on the end of the line there. And I look up at this defensive end across from me and look up literally, because I mean, he was six foot three. Uh, I, I wrote it down in my notes, six foot three, two thirty, four seven forty. This guy's name is, was Tom Logan. I went and looked, I went and verified that, but old Tommy Logan, six, three, two thirty, four, seven. Here I am. I'm six, one, one ninety five. And, uh, it was one of those things where he was bigger, faster, stronger, longer, just better in every sense of the word. He was just better than me, but what did I do? I just went as basically balls to the wall would be, would be the, the expression, man. I just went as hard as I could. Like, I think I probably looked like a little like baby duck just like trying to learn how to swim in the water and just all my limbs and arms and legs flailing all over the place. But uh, I played as hard as I could. And he honestly, he probably was just laughing the whole time. It always feel like I need one more boy. One more line, record the track just one more time. My family think I bumped my head, lost my mind, and sharing them. I'm just fine, I'm good enough, but I need one more boy. One more line, record the track just one more time. My family think I bumped my head, lost my mind, and sharing them. I'm just fine, I'm good enough, but I need one more boy. One more line, record the track just one more time. My family think I bumped my head. Lost my mind, insuring them. I'm just fine, I'm good enough. But you be told I need some therapy. Initially, ain't do it voluntarily, but now I got a legacy. All right, welcome back to another brand new episode of the Team Player Podcast. This is episode number 65. This is a very special episode filled with lots of team player firsts. I've been your fearless leader here for these this past year plus, you know, of episodes here, but I'm gonna I'm gonna relinquish the reins tonight. I have two of my uh, former team player podcast alums, two of my really good friends, Coach Michael Vitek and Coach Chris Fisher. Uh, they're both going to be here tonight. They are going to be your host tonight, and I will be the subject. So, but before we get started, you know, as always, if you're a fan of the show, please take the five seconds. Give us that five-star rating. That helps so much to help people find our show. We've, we've cracked the 50 mark on Spotify, so we're, we're above 50, you know, and so we're, we're climbing and growing onwards and upwards, as they say. And uh, word of mouth is great. We may not have the biggest audience, but we have a pretty loyal audience. Like I will get text yeah. messages after good episodes and it's really fun. So we got a cool community. So please, anybody you know that likes sports or coaching or any or just positive stories in general, this podcast is for them. You can leave a written review. I'll read those live on the air. 
and you can hit the follow button to subscribe. That means you'll get a new uh, episode in your queue every Sunday. And then you can follow me on Twitter at coach underscore Kovo. That's coach underscore K-O-V-O. And last thing that I want to do just to highlight, if you do want to listen to Coach Fisher's episode, that was episode number 27. And Coach Vitek, his episode is number 37. So if you're listening to this and you want to dig in more on the hosts that are going to grill me tonight, you can go find their episodes and learn more about them. All right, that's it. I'm, I'm turning over the wheel. Who's got it? Let's, let's do this. It's going to be fun. I'll start. Um, like Kobo said, we're, uh, we're flipping the script on him tonight. Yeah. Um, so basically, I, tell, us, tell us about you. Where, you know, where'd you grow up? Um, where'd you go to high school? Yeah, no doubt. So, so early life, what people may not know about me when they see the name James Kovaleski, I was not born in this. Well, they might think that because my name, but I was not born in this country, but it's not Poland like you might think. I was born in Tokyo, Japan. Wow. And so the story behind that is, uh, you know, my dad is from Rockford, Illinois. It's a, it's a city northwest of Chicago. It was actually the biggest city in Illinois for a long period of, or second biggest, excuse me, behind Chicago for a long period of time. I think kind of the recession, has, it, the population kind of dwindled over the years, but it was the second biggest city in Illinois when he was growing up uh, right there on the border of Wisconsin. But he was one of those kids that came from kind of a poor uh, second generation Polish family, you know, going to college wasn't really um, something that, that his family had, had done much of, you know, my, my uncle uh, ended up joining the army and, and it became a postal carrier for his entire, you know, career. And then my dad really kind of did the same. So he, he, uh, out of high school, he joined the army. He was in the Vietnam war. He also went to work for the state. Uh, my dad was a correctional officer, a prison guard, you know, for the state of Texas for his entire career. And he's now retired, oh. but um, that was, that's kind of the story. So anyhow, after Vietnam, he did, he ended up being in Japan for a period. Once he was out of the military, he, he returned to Japan uh, to become an English teacher. So he kind of did one of those, uh, kind of oh, like cool. Stephen Oates, I believe, is doing something similar yeah. to this. Yeah, mm -hmm. so my dad did something like that. He was an English teacher. And I don't know about blurring the lines of what's acceptable. Uh, my mom was one of his students. Now, <laughs> now, granted, she was an adult student. This was an adult English class. She wasn't 16 or anything. That makes it okay. But uh Anyhow, that's how they met. Uh, I was born in, in Tokyo, Japan. I, we lived there for about a year, and then we, we came to Houston. Uh, I grew up in Ailey first was kind of our first stop, and then um, into, into Spring Branch. Uh, not Memorial, believe it or not. We were kind of more in the Springwoods, Northbrook area of, of Spring Branch. And uh, I, I think that's kind of cool looking back on it. It's kind of the immigrant story, you know, because yeah. my dad is an American, but uh, not wealthy American. My mom was coming from another country, leaving everything behind, and so – like we see in a lot of lower income schools that have high immigrant populations. I mean, I was, I wouldn't call myself completely an immigrant because my, my father's an American. So yeah. I did have the dual passports. I had dual citizenship. So up until I was 18, I had two passports, you know, the That's red, cool. the red Japanese one. And then the Navy, you know, USA one, but uh, I got to live that experience. And then like many immigrants, it was kind of one of those things of just continuing to buy the cheapest property in the next better neighborhood. And so we went <laughs> yeah. to a leaf to spring branch, to Fort Bend. And I grew up in a place called Barrington place. Uh, it's off of Eldridge road. I, I went to Sugarland middle school. I would have been a Kempner Cougar had I not moved. And that's where I spent the majority of my life growing up until eighth grade. Again, my parents trying to get to the next better neighborhood, you know, about the cheapest house in new territory. And that's yeah. kind of where I spent my eighth grade and they still live there to this day. So that's, that's kind of the background as far as where I grew up and all that kind of stuff. That's cool. Have you, have you had a chance to go to Japan? Have you ever been? Yeah, yeah. I get to go because my mom was the only one from her family to, to come to America. Oh, yeah? She left it all behind. And I, her, I always admire her courage. I'm a big mama's boy, man. My mom is my hero. <laughs> like, she's awesome. She, she started here just working at a kinder care, like a, a daycare really? attendant. 
and nothing and obviously nothing against that but you know she's still learning english and she just kind of yeah. continued to progress eventually she's now the general manager of a, a japanese travel agency very successful you know businesswoman and uh has had a great career and been able to provide for my brother and i uh you know a better life you know than, than when we came here so uh kudos to her but yeah I, we do go back periodically you know japan is a big expensive trip uh it's a 14 hour flight so yeah. it's difficult so unfortunately i can't say that i go back annually but i've probably been back you know three or four times i guess in my life well i want to keep definitely want to continue to do that though yeah i need to hit her up i want to go let's do it <laughs> yeah for sure um so when you moved to this area um you you said in in one of the the questions you sent me back um that you live in an apartment complex and you would go across the street and watch all the games yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Tell us about that experience yeah so i think coach fisher probably knows this story a little bit because this this is my formative football story but we, we used to live in barrington place our house sold like that I wish my house would sell like that. I'm trying to sell my house right now. I'm trying to move to Canada. Yeah. It's sold like that. And, uh, you know, so we, we were building a house in New Territory, kind of like we're now building a house in Katy. It's funny how life is just kind of, life is a, is a circle. Always, always, but, but um, you know, uh, that was a situation. So we needed a place to stay for a couple months. And so my parents settled on, I, I forget what they were called. Uh, Coach Fisher may know because he called it Clements many years, but those apartments that are right across the street from Mercer Stadium, that's where I lived. And I, so I lived right there. And so I'd be, you know, whatever playing around outside. I was an eighth, I was an eighth grade at the time or walking around and I'd see the lights come on at Mercer stadium. And I'd never had really been to high school football. When I was very little, my dad used to take me to crump stadium in a leaf to go watch games. But after that time we kind of stopped going. And so it was in eighth grade that I just saw those lights and I was, you know, I had no friends there. I'm staying in an apartment for a short period of time. I'd moved away from my childhood home. And so I, I had no friends <laughs> to play with or anything. And so I just walked across the street. Friday night, Saturday afternoon, Saturday night. I was at every single event at Mercer Stadium three nights every week. I sat in the same seat every time. Uh, I was basically like a season ticket holder, but not, not a, a, officially, but I had my seat. I went and got the same food and drink every time. I got a blue Powerade and I got a nachos, a nachos and cheese. And that, that, was, my, that was my routine. And I, well, and I, bought, a pro, I bought a the, game program. Go ahead, Chris. I was about to say, don't forget the pre the – one of my favorite parts of the story is the pre-gaming that you would do too. Yes. That you mentioned. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Talk about that a little too. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, the, the pre-gaming, it's not, it's not like, you know, tailgating and, and having a beer. I was just an eighth grader, but it, it was kind of like my version of that. Right. I went and got food yeah. and drink and had some fun. So I'd walk over to first colony mall. There was a place and some of you native sugar landers may remember this, the steak escape, but yes. that was my place. I went to the steak escape every time, got myself a good Philly cheesesteak, and they had these good fries with like really good seasoning and like they use peanut oil. There's a kind of a little bit of different taste to it. And I, that was where I would eat. And then I would walk to the uh, like, I don't remember if it was a Barnes and Noble, maybe, maybe it was a bookstop. I mean, this is a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> I've met him free yeah. Barnes and Noble. <laughs> and uh, I'd go in there and I would I would read the Dave Campbell's magazine. Now, I never actually bought it <laughs> at that time. I've since collected many because I'm kind of a collector, but um I bought, I would just sit there and I'd read the Dave Campbell's and I would read about the teams that I was about to go see. And then the other part was, and I, I'm a guy that likes to collect like sports stuff. And so I would always buy the program. And so every time I went to a game, I would buy the home team's programs. I, I had a big stack of programs, which I finally threw out a couple of years ago, but um, that's what I would do. That was my routine. Every single time I'm, I'm a big time creature of habit for sure. <laughs> so VTech and I both grew up in like in single school towns. Sure. And so, like, I mean, I, I'm sure just like, you know, 
we grew up, I grew up being groomed to be a walk to edge Indian, you right. know? So like in your experience, you're going and watching a, a variety of teams every weekend. So was there any teams that you latched onto that you became like fans of more than the other, or did you like, did you lean toward the schools that you were on path to attend? What, how did that go? That's a great question, man. That That's an excellent question. And I, I'd have to say like the fan attendance was not great. It was good, but not great. Like for instance, I sat kind of towards, um, uh, I, I sat towards like kind of like uh, the, the sides. I sat towards the top, but towards, towards the concession stand uh, in the scoreboard side away from the field house. That was like my spot, but like I was always alone. You know, the fans t- t- typically sat in the middle, you know, they sat in those yeah. middle oh, seats yeah. at Mercer stadium, you know? And so it was never a sellout in the games that I went to really was never, it was never fully a sellout, you know, some crowds bigger than others, but I was zoned to go to Kempner uh, originally, you know, and at that time Kempner was not good, but I was moving in eighth grade. So I know, okay, now I'm going to go to Austin and much like Ridgepoint, Austin at that time was a new kid on the block. And Chris, you've seen this many a times. I mean, Michael, you probably have too. I mean, when new schools come on the scene in Fort Bend, they typically do well. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them have done Strange. really good. Travis, springs to mind of course Ridgepoint we all know about Hightower you know I mean so Austin was doing good at that time uh, I think before that the kids were, were split between Clements and Kempner at the time you know I would you know and uh New Territory actually would have went to Kempner at that time I, I take that back New Territory went to Clements at the time I actually checked on this uh, over a former alum and anyhow so I yeah I knew I was going to Kempner as a little kid but no it, Chris that's a great question it was not like dreaming to be a katie tiger like hopefully my son does when we move you know it was not that like i wasn't like oh a kempner cougar you know we're going two and eight every three and seven i know there were some good teams like come maybe more coach darnell was around but like the period when i was going kempner was had hit a lull and um and then so austin was kind of fun because it was new they had the cool black uniforms and they were winning you know early on so here i am thinking this is going to be great like i get to be part of a better team so of course i liked austin um Funny story is, of course, my senior year of high school, the tables totally turn. My team goes three and seven. Kempner goes 10 and 0. <laughs> it's all these childhood friends of mine. And I know I could have started on that team. I just know it. <laughs> I know these guys. And I'm like, I could have been a part of a 10 and 0 team. But of course, then they they met Roger Wright, the UT, you know, star in Aleph Hastings in the first round of loss. But um, anyhow, but to answer your question, the team that I kind of like not was zoned to, but I liked was no doubt the Willow Ridge Eagles. And at that time, they had that nationally renowned band. And it, the band has shrunken in size. They still have a great band that plays the same kind of style of music, but the size. At that time, Willowridge was vibrant and flourishing, and they were about to kind of go on a little bit of a decline, but they were still, at that time, a really tough out in the district and a really successful athletics program and fine arts program. And so that band was going to Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade every year, and they they would bring the most crowd. They would be the, the band that would perform at halftime, and the visiting crowd would give them a standing ovation every single time. Those are memories I have at Mercer Stadium of, of Willow Ridge. And so they, they were my favorite outside of, outside of Austin. Okay. So you went to Austin, and it, was it were you the first graduating class from Austin? No, not the first graduating class. Um, th- th- I wasn't even – like. Austin opened in 95. I graduated in 2002. Yeah. So right. I was, it was new ish, but not, yeah. Uh, was one. yeah, I was not part of the, the, the kind of the pioneers there. So you played football at Austin and what other sports did you do there? I was football and I was track. And one big formative story that, that you know, is I was a big 
chubby kid growing up, you know, and I think people look at me now and, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not skinny by any means, but like, I don't look like an offensive lineman. I, I'd say coach yeah. Fisher and I share this together. We both, we are both offensive linemen that have like, I would never have guessed either one. Yep. of you would have Yeah. We both have prioritized fitness in our later years. And so we've yeah. him down a little bit, but um, you know, we, I was always chubby. So when I, I always begged to play football, but this is something, you know, immigrant mothers sometimes can be apprehensive towards football because it's not something they grew up with. And so my mom was very much telling me no to playing youth football. Mm-hmm. My opinion now, I do believe kids start playing tackle football in seventh grade. So I actually think it was a bonus for me. Uh, but at the time I wanted to play youth league, wasn't allowed to, I begged and begged when I got to Sugarland in seventh grade, she allowed me to go out for the team. Um, but anyway, when he looked at me, there was no, he, there was no choice on positions. I was going to be an offensive lineman and I knew it, you know, but, and so I get to Austin my freshman year and I'd always been an A team kid. You know, I'd always been at Sugarland middle, middle school as a starter on the A team. And then I got to Austin and I was a starting actually defensive tackle that year on the A team, a freshman. Um, but I just could tell, especially when you get to high school, like middle school, we're all just kind of chest bumping and not really, it's not you no know, real football all the way, you know, sometimes, yeah. but in high school, when you start adding that weightlifting component, cause we didn't really do weightlifting at Sugarland. Mm-hmm. When you start adding that weightlifting component, now your name is plastered on, on a spreadsheet on the wall and it's com- competitive. I realized I am behind. I didn't like that feeling. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay in my grade, but like, I got to go against these guys that are bigger than me, older than me, faster than me. I was like, I got to get in better sh- physical condition. And I became, I was the kind of kid, like a lot of us nineties kids with what they call a latchkey kid. You yeah. know, my dad worked at nights at a prison. My dad worked the overnight shift. So he, he would work through the night and come home like six 30 in the morning. And so he would sleep all day. My mom was working long hours as a travel agent. So I would come home and be alone my entire like after school life, elementary, okay. whatever. And dude, I, 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 I'm kind of surprised now that I don't have like coronary heart disease at 40. Cause like I ate anything and everything that I wanted. It was all Twix bars and soda, like three sodas a day and Cheetos. Cheetos. It was everything It's whatever I want a bologna sandwich all the time, you know? And so, um, I just, I was always chubby, man. But anyway, it was in my freshman year towards the end of it, leading into the summertime. I, I just, I made a pact to myself and I be, I had a Spartan like existence, what I call it. <laughs> I completely changed my diet and I, I allowed myself no pleasures. So I would eat a salad every night, no dressing on it. I was just eating like oh. lettuce and tomato and, you know, and I would no, no, uh, no chips, no cookies, no candies, no fried foods, no soda, only water. And I did that like for, a, and, and every day I'd go to the track at Austin high school and run a mile. And so anyway, I left my freshman year. I was 5'11", 220 and a bad 5'11", 220. <laughs> I got back my, my sophomore year. I was six foot one. So I gained two inches and I was 188. Trimmed up. So I'd lost 32 pounds. So I was completely different. I didn't really look like a lineman anymore, but it's one of those things where that's all I'd ever done. And I was, you know, effective at it. And the coaches, so they just kept me there. And uh, that's kind of how it, that's kind of my football story. It always, like many linemen, I, I dreamed of playing tight end. That was kind of always my thing. I, and I felt like I had the chops to do it because I, you know, I'm decently fast and I felt like I could do it, but you know, it, it, it never really happened for me. <laughs> so I just have those dreams you know, that were never fulfilled, but I see coach Fisher nodding his head. I know he probably wanted to go out and catch some passes too, but. Oh my goodness. So like every, I read a book, uh, Howard Mudd, one of the famous NFL O-line coaches, he wrote an entire book about guys that he coached and every single one of those guys, their story is 
they never wanted to be an offensive lineman. <laughs> they right. all wanted to be a tight end, a defensive end, a linebacker, fullback, whatever. Yeah, and, and I, it's just so funny, like just the continuity of that of that mindset for right. lots of offensive linemen. So yeah, that's, that's that's very disciplined for a to be a freshman and give yeah. up all that stuff. Like oh, I got a two liter of Dr Pepper right here that I'm drinking. <laughs> That is a good point. And, and honestly, Kobo, I've, I mean, like ever since I met you, you know, I feel like you've always had that discipline in you when it comes to things. What do you think has uh, helped, helped you form that in your life? I don't know, man. That That's a really good question. Um, I, I would guess I credit my mom, you know, uh, just I see her like she really is the epitome and what I'm about to describe is not the way that like relationships and marriages should be, but she was, she was the epitome of doing everything, including like being the breadwinner at home, which again, I'm not, I'm not all for like gender roles or whatever, but like she, I mean, she would be the breadwinner, like of her job as a travel agent, but also do everything around the house, cook all of the meals, cooking, all of the cleaning, all of the taking care of the kids. I mean, that's as, as the listeners know, my dad and I did not have a very good relationship things have gotten better as time has passed on. I'm the kind of person like I just, it's water under the bridge for me. I mean, you, you kind of never forget, you know, but it, I'm just like, let's move forward, you know, but like I would describe that my dad, I mean, he really lucked into a situation where he did very little relative to my mom and that's not the way relationships should be. So I, I don't want that for my, my marriage. I don't want that for my kids marriage, you know, coach Fisher. I know your, your son's getting married on, on December 30th, which is, our wedding yeah. anniversary. So a very special day. Um, but I, I, I guess what I'm saying is I did not, I was not one of those kids that grew up seeing the white picket fence. Like I'll put it this way. I grew up in new territories. So like the house looked nice. And on the surface you would think, Oh, he's, he's a new, he's an awesome new territory kid. He must have a great life. No one knew what was going on inside that house. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that I took into being a teacher, I guess is just, I, I understood that you never know. And whenever you're going through those tough times, you always feel like you're the only one that's going through that, you know? And so yeah. I just took that into my, into my teaching. Like whenever I would see kids that struggling, I would always try to express that to my kids. I even talk about it openly in class. Like I'd bring that up and talk a little bit, reveal a little bit about my past, let them know that if you are dealing with something, you're not the only one I've lived it too. I'm here for you. Um, but anyhow, I guess to go back to the question of how did I become so disciplined? I think it's just observing my mom just observing someone who was in constant motion. I really feel I'm honestly sad for her as I look back and now she's older. She's, she was never anyone that got to experience those years in her life. Like I got to do going out with my friends and singing karaoke or, you know, the fun stuff I like to do, you know, the Fisher knows about, or, you know, like go on trips. Like she just always sacrificed everything for her family. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of work ethic hope, you know, came to me in, in certain regards. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not, not the same as my mom's level, but that just watching someone like her and just respecting that and then wanting to be like that kind of always um, guided me to where I was a kid. I never stepped out of line. I, I was not the kid my parents had to worry about if I was going to some party or being in trouble. Like I, I was, I had no curfew because they did, they did trust me and they could trust me. So I would say my mom, definitely hundred percent my mom. All right. And uh, VTech, did you go ahead? I was gonna say, it, I think it really helps also for us teachers whenever the kids see that we're real people too. Because a lot of times, yeah. um, especially like for the younger high school kids, they don't realize that you know we have lives and we're people. They just think we live up here. Yeah. And so when you make those connections, it it it's I don't know, it makes your classroom so much better. And it's oh, not always easy. It's not always easy to do. Sure. No, it's not. You got to bring in that human element, you know, and you know, like. 
like you mentioned, and you you've been very open in your all your episodes about yeah. um, your your experience at home. Yep. And the impact that the coaches had on you. Yes. Uh, were there, you know, like what uh, was there any specific coach that you connected with the most? And also, like you mentioned, you know, like you said, like we we don't always know what's what the kid brings into class with them or brings into right. the field house with them. Do you think that he knew or did you ever reveal to him what was going on? Right. That's a good question. And uh, to, let me answer the last one first. No, I, I did not. Yeah, I was a kid that kind of carried my cross silently, I guess to say, carried the burden silently. I, I didn't, I guess I didn't want to throw my parents under the bus in that one, one sense, maybe. And I, maybe that was part of it. Maybe part two, I didn't want to, I didn't want to trouble my coach. Mm-hmm. And um, looking back, I know that he would have been open to it, but like, I just, I kind of just felt like that was my problem. And I was just grateful that, that when I was at school, my coach made me feel like I was, you know, the, the, the biggest thing on earth. And I was somebody and I was special, uh, but it was definitely coach Kitterman. Now I came from a staff that was like Ridge point, just a top to bottom, just great men. And that's kind of why I was drawn to them is I would see them in the summertime or after school, whenever their kids would come. And I just would see that kind of like the way that they were with their kids and their wives and stuff. And I just was really not envious, but like um, in awe of it, you know, I was drawn to it because I didn't, I didn't grow up with that kind of, you know, environment. You know, the environment I grew in was always fighting. Just every day is a fight. Every single day was a fight. Every, every morning I know when my dad comes home, it's the first fight. And then I get to go to school. And then I know after dinner or, you know, when my mom gets home, it's the next fight as he's yelling at her to get dinner on the table. And then I know it's like going to bed. They're fighting downstairs about us. And it was just constant. It was a war zone. You know, I don't want to make I don't know, war or something. Completely, but I've used that as a term, you know, like it was just yeah, constant yeah. fighting, you know. And it, and then sometimes it got like more physical, you know, and where it was like traumatic and that kind of stuff. And I was hoping things would slow down as, as age happened, you know, but my brother's 10 years younger than me and he had to experience many of the same. It is just, it is what it is, you know? And so I, I just, I, I'm sharing the reason I'm so open about it, not to make people feel uncomfortable or pity me, but just to kind of normalize to maybe some people, some people that are listening that you've gone through that. Yeah. There's others out there like you. There's many others out there like you. So there's nothing wrong with you. It's not your fault. You know, it's, it's the parents, you know, the, the parent, the, 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 the people committing the aggressions are the people that are responsible at the end of the day, not children. And so that's always a big thing for me is like kids just trying to help kids uh, fight through that. That's why coaches are so important. But yeah, Chris, I mean, my, that's what it was. It was coach Kitterman. He was my offensive line coach. He just had that certain way about him. And I tried to emulate that in my coaching that like, he was an emotional guy. Now he played football at Stephen F. Austin University, went to Alvin High School. He's a big lineman. He's now the offensive coordinator at Cy Falls High School. So he's a very accomplished coach in his own right for a great team that made the playoffs this year. Um, but he was very passionate. And that's what I liked about him. He had this way of looking at you with those big piercing eyes that were always like a little bit red, like he was on the verge of tears because he was so like, emo- like he was just filled with emotion, like in big games. He would look at me. And he's you know, like, by God, Kobe, you can do it. You know? And like, it was, that's the way it was. And you know, he's like, I remember playing Willeridge one year and I was, um, uh, I was going up against big John Stovall, this great defensive tackle, man. And they, they were the number one defense in the city. My junior year, Willeridge mm-hmm. was still very good at that time. And he was kicking my ass in the first half. And I was kind of getting, I was getting a little defeated. And at halftime, he told me, he just looked at me with those big intense eyes. And he said, you know, Kobe, he, 
he's he's a 17 year old just like you're you're older than me but anyway he's 17 just like you are he feels pain like you do he's tired right now just like you are and it it just it spurred me on to again just give a balls to the wall effort in the second half and i played better you know i neutralized it i didn't i didn't like beat him or anything (laughs) but i neutralized the ass kicking that was happening a little bit so um yeah man but any just to wrap up the question chris man they just they made me feel important they were like what i thought a family should look like and i just think that's so important and that's why i do this show now is like i don't like it when i see any kind of scaling back of extracurriculars whether it's athletics or anything we do not need to go that way i mean i'm not the classroom's important my mom is is a japanese mother trust me i was emphasized (laughs) academics my entire life but it's important but man there's these things that you can only feel from being part of a team and for kids going through trauma it's it's life-changing yeah it definitely i think it definitely is is kids lifelines certain kids lifelines and it's the reason why they come and not just the kids that are struggling even kids that have a great family coaches augment their life too you know what i mean so it's not just it's not just kids like me that had that like kids that have great parents and great support system they love their coaches too you know what i mean so yeah yeah and some in some cases like that i mean there's kids out there that like you said they have a great existence at home. They never want for anything, but you know, like they go to, they go to school, they go to the field house and, and the coaches make them want to do something, make them earn something for the first time in their life. And that's a very important experience. Very important lesson. I think like a big indicator is like that feeling. And it's, it's a cliche, but it's one that I kind of like, but of like, I would run through a wall for this coach. Yeah. That I just wanted to make coach Kitterman proud of me. And I, I liked all, I loved all my coaches, but there was two coaches in particular that kind of gave me that feeling of like, I just desperately wanted their, um, their, uh, praise or, or their acceptance or, you know, their admiration. It was definitely coach Kitterman, my O-line coach. And this guy, y'all know, well, coach Brantley, the head football coach at Elkins was my track coach. Yeah. And even though he, he was, you know, he didn't coach lineman or anything. He was a skill guy, but there was something about him that I just really respected. Something about the way that he moved the way that he carried himself that I wanted to throw that shot as far as I could. And so that was to answer your question, Mike, that was my other sport was track Track. story behind that is, and coach Fisher knows this. I had no idea what a shot in a disc was like, it's not like televised on TV much, you know? So I I really didn't even think, I didn't even know about it, honestly. And so I finished playing freshman year football. So I think, okay, football season's over. I guess I'll get on the bus and go home and not so fast, my friend. And I was in my little gray shimmels and they took my ass out to track practice. And I was terrible. As I already explained, I was not a great athlete freshman year, sophomore year. I was like super skinny. I was getting more athletic, but still skinny. And so they forced me to do track. I was God awful. I was one of the worst (laughs) shot putters, you know, on our squad. And so then junior year, I'm, I'm, I'm a junior on JV. I mean, a junior, I I played varsity football, but track, I was a junior on JV, but I was that off season. Like I started like packing on muscle. And so every meet, it was like, I'm adding feet to my total and I think I finished the year coach Brantley bumped me up to varsity for the district meet and so that was my only varsity meet I went to district Jonathan Reeves was my teammate if you guys were around Fort Bend at the time he went to Arkansas he he could throw like 70 feet 63 feet I think was his shot distance and he he was excellent in disc as well but so it it was him and me (laughs) you know here i am i'm throwing like maybe i don't know low four maybe 40 maybe high 39 i don't remember what it was but it was terrible and so i finished junior year i come back for senior year at the beginning of the year coach brantley just comes up to me and he's like i kind of gives him that that look and that smile he's like kobe i need you to get 50 this year and i just i I literally almost laughed i laughed in his face (laughs) i was like 
coach, you know, I threw like 39 at the district or whatever it was. I remember it was 39 yeah. or 41 or something. That's a big jump in yeah. one. That's oh, long, yeah. as far. But that is yeah. a huge jump. Yeah. It's a huge jump. And I didn't think I could do it. And, but again, I, I was a kind of a late bloomer. Like I said, I played varsity line at 195 pounds at Austin as a senior. I weighed 225. So I was still undersized, but like I was at that now, so now I'm looking better, you know? And, uh, I just kept going and going and I got better and better and better. And the funny story is y'all, I threw 50 feet one time in my entire life. I hit it one time, 50 feet, five and one half inch. So 50 feet, 5.5 inches. I did it at the district meet. That's awesome. That that was my goal. I just wanted that feeling of being able to come to coach Brantley and say, Hey coach, I got his points. I got it. I got, I got the silver that year. So I got to go to regionals, but that's all I wanted. I said, coach, I want I got, I threw 50 and I got a second place. I got his eight points, you that's know? Awesome. And it just, that was one of my best memories, man. But uh, just that, that, that's great coaches, man. You know, I, I think back to my coaching career, you know, I can in my head and Crystal know, like I can, I can envision certain players that I felt, that looked at me the way that I looked at my coaches. And the first guy that comes to mind is Jay fan. Mm-hmm. Like I knew that Jay fan would do anything to please me. <laughs> you know, like he, he really would sacrifice life and limb to do that. And so I had to save him from himself. Sometimes, you know, I was like, Jay it's walkthrough or it's practice, like <laughs> going a thousand miles an hour. You're going to, you know, he had stingers all the time. And so, but it was special, man. Like kids like that. It made me feel good too, to know that, how much he cared about, about my, me and like, you know, just doing right by the team and playing as hard as he could. So that that's, that's beautiful stuff. And I, again, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a stance against academics, but you just cannot replicate that feeling anywhere else in a team. I feel like so. So do you think um, your high school coaches really inspired you to want to be a teacher and a coach? Was that what it was? Or did you want to do that always? But you know what? It's both. And uh, it actually started for me in eighth grade. I think it was those times at Mercer Stadium. I just really fell in love with it. And also, I had good, I had good coaches in middle school. Of course, it was less intense. You know, yeah. it wasn't the same level of intensity. But they also I, – I just loved it. Like, I mm-hmm. loved being a part of the football team at Sugarland. We were not good. You know, I think we won one game the two years I was there. Um, I've always been on losing teams. <laughs> Coaching. Ridgepoint. Ridgepoint was great in Clements my last year. But uh, as a player, man, we always lost. I, I think that I've – Starting in seventh grade through like high school and college, I think I've never been on a winning team, but one time. And that was when I was on that JVB team. Like my sophomore year, we, we had a good team. We had a winning record, but that's the only winning record I probably ever had in my playing career. But, um, <laughs> but anyhow, yeah, the, it was that, it was a combination of like, I, I, I got the football bug sitting at Mercer stadium as an eighth grader. Cause I, you know, I was lonely and it just, I don't know. I just, I just really gravitated to that place. I, that was my Mecca, you know? And I, yeah. I went there all, like all the time. And, uh, but I think that my high school coaches, they solidified it. I had a great high school experience. They were, I could not have asked for more, you know, we didn't win the games, but we, we, they gave us the experience of a lifetime and I am forever thankful to, to them for that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And so you, you went after high school, you played, football in college. Yep. So tell, tell us about where you went to college and just your, your college experience. Cause you said you, you were never on a winning team that and going back to your discipline that I think that's tough, especially for athletes today that, you know, they don't, they don't see the results. And so they don't think they're getting anything out of it when they really are. Yeah. Yeah. And not, not to say that it, like I losing became normalized for me. I hate to say that, but I, I guess I, I would say that I, I kind of expected hate to say it, but I, not that I expected to lose, maybe in the back of my head, I expected we were, we were going to lose, 
in a way, like overall, for like the course of the season, I did not see us as a team that was going to contend for championships. Yeah. You know, um, it did not change anything about the way that I prepare. And I still believed, I guess I just kind of more, I, I believed I could win my matchup. So gotcha. when I was at Austin, you know, my goal as a senior was to be a first team, all district offensive lineman. I've always had that goal. Like ever since I was an eighth grader sitting in those bleachers, I wanted to be a first team, all district offensive lineman in 25 at 25 a, which is now called 26 a. Yeah. And, uh, that's what I focused on. And I just felt like if I do everything I can, the, the winning or losing will take care of itself. And at the end of the day, I'll sleep good at night knowing that I did everything. And so that that's not just playing hard on the field. That is what I did in the off season. Yeah. I was the guy that never missed a workout. I did not engage in any kind of drinking or anything in high school at all. I, I was very strict to my diet, as I've kind of mentioned, I, as I got more fit, I could, I could relax a little bit. Cause I, I kind of broken through that, like really bad overweight period that I had. So then I, I was fit. I could indulge a little bit more, but, um, I never drank, never smoked, never did any of that kind of stuff. Same in college in college, you know, it's a little different, right? You're living away from your parents. Yeah. The majority of our football team drank heavily, Freedom. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it's college. And I, I was even Fisher knows this my first couple of years at, at Clements. I mean, I was boring as a doorknob. I had no personality, no social life. You know, I lived, I lived with my parents. I hung out with my little brother, you know, who was like eight years old or something. I don't know. Or he's older than that. He's like 12 years old. You know, that, that was my existence. And that's the way that I was. And yeah, I remember in college, like my, my teammates and I was like, and they called me Q. I'll give you the story behind that one. My nickname was Q. Yeah, first, awesome. yeah I don't know if I've ever told you the story, Chris, but you know, first day of, of fall camp, you know, I'm a freshman, you know, you put the name tags on the helmet. And so mine says Kovaleski. And, but you know, the way my name is spelled, it looks like Ko Kowaluski, you yeah. know, it's W's and a bunch of we're Polish, a bunch of W's all over the place. And <laughs> anyhow, there was a senior named Duncan McCallum. He's from Austin. And uh, he, he was a big, strong guy, you know, real, real funny, you know, real confident, self-assured kind of guy. And he, one day where we're sitting there going through drills and he stops and he puts his hands on his hips and he kind of looks at me and he goes, Koala Wallalooski, you know, he was reading my name tag and he goes, Koala Wallalooski. And I just kind of smile and nod and yeah. he's like, uh, that, nah, that's not going to work. <laughs> and he said, uh, I'm going to call you Koala Bear. Yeah, that's not going to work either. That's too long. Didn't have a good ring to it. I'm going to call you Q Bear. And I, I guess I never understood fully if he thought Koala was spelled with a Q or what he was doing with that because I, I should have been K Bear, but right. <laughs> Q sounds so much better than K. And yeah, so he was the coding name. Yeah, yeah, he called me Q Bear, and then it just it shrunk down to Q. And oh my God, it stuck. My entire time at Austin College, it just stuck. Just like the way everybody calls me Kovo now. It yeah. was like everybody called me Q. My professors called me Q. <laughs> and they didn't even ask. <laughs> you know, at the beginning of the year, I'd introduce myself as please, you know, you know check and roll or whatever. I'm 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 calling me Q. And they just did it. And so everybody called me Q at Austin College. It has nothing to have been a quarterback or my middle name's not Quincy or they're, they're, it, other than Duncan McCallum either misspelled or he's as sly as a fox and he was just being super brilliant with my nickname. But uh, yeah. I, I, that was an awesome nickname. But yeah, man, that's, that, that's that, that was kind of that story. But anyhow, to finish it up, my teammates were always like, come on, Q, come out to the party. You know? And I, I was like, nah, you know, I'm going to go back to my dorm and play and play NCAA, you know? And I never did it. But <laughs> yeah. what I always did for them was when the season finished, I said, when the season finished, I'm going to go out. And mm -hmm. it was so funny when I would walk into the frat house and be like, oh, Q, you know, and they'd be giving me beers, and I, I would just get going for somebody who went didn't drink at all to drinking of those guys. I, of course, I would be, you know, a drunken mess, but I did that once per year. I would allow myself, or once per semester, I guess I should say. I also did it at the end of the, in the spring, but 
I drank like twice per year in college. That just shows kind of the way that I'm wired. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. And so like, and like, I carried that over. Like I explained like my early coaching career, of no personality. I, I still remember the story one time of sitting, I think it was at a, maybe Kevin Bird's house in Pecan Grove somewhere. Or I can't remember whose house After it was. The spring game. It yeah. was me, Kevin, and, and you came over with <laughs> Because Kevin and I lived in the same neighborhood, so yep. after the spring game, we went and hung out at his garage, and we were, we were drinking some beer, and I'm pretty sure that the beer that we handed you is still full today. <laughs> yes, is that true? <laughs> I, you, you talk about nursing a beer? Oh, man. I had that down. I, I, I did not. I, I drank a beer, like, in an entire evening of, like, kicking up the coaches, so that just tells you right there. <laughs> And of course, and I'm, I'm going to say that all changed if our good friend Derek Ruthart. Oh, yeah. Once I started hanging out with Ruthart more, who is, I just say he's a moderate to heavy drinker when he's going out, you know, and we, you know, we, we love to sing karaoke, both me and Derek. So we kind of got into that karaoke, like doing that and like going to Wild West and two-stepping and stuff and doing it. That's when I changed. At that moment, kind of my personality changed. I became more outgoing and uh, I'm thankful for that. You know, I don't advocate like heavy drinking. Obviously, it's not good for you to do in moderation, but it, it allowed me to at least be more comfortable in a social setting. So at least mm -hmm. now, if I were to have a beer of Coach Fisher, it would not be awkward of like, why is Kobo like literally <laughs> sipping this beer? I'll just sing karaoke without some liquid courage. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Derek is a great guy. I mean, yeah, if, yeah. You're, if you're if you're uncomfortable around Derek, then I don't know what I don't know what you're thinking, because he is so easy to be around and just yes, he is. Yep. He, he definitely loosens you, loosens you up. And, you know, you, conversations in the night can go in a multitude of directions. <laughs> yes, they can. <laughs> oh, good stuff. So good. Um, go ahead, Fisher. Oh, I was about to say, so, all right, so I think we're talking about uh, the college experience. So going to your playing days in, at Austin College. Well, th this is a theme for me, and this is my, uh, my one regret, and I've told this story on the podcast a couple times. It's ironic, you know, this, this podcast is called the Team Player Podcast, and for my entire coaching, my entire playing career, I was the consummate team player. I was that guy that you knew that Kovaleski was never going to miss a workout. He is bringing other linemen into the field house in the summer and like leading those kinds of things. My senior year, I fell off the wagon a little bit and I was not a team player. So I'll, I'll kind of get into that story, but it always kind of revolved around and came back to my size, you know, in high school, you know, I, I told the story about like losing dramatic amount of weight. I didn't really look like an offensive lineman anymore, but that's what I'd always played. And so I just did it. And of course I love coach Kitterman. So I, in high school, yeah, I wanted to play tight end, but it was never serious. I never actually was pushing my coaches, let me be the starting tight end. I just wanted to do it. I just wanted to catch a pass in practice. But, like, I loved being an offensive lineman. I loved – I would never leave Coach Kitterman. That would break my heart. So, I was, like, I was very happy with it. But when I finished high school, I kind of felt like, okay, this is the next chapter. I'm obviously – I'm not an offensive lineman. I want to play defensive line. And, you know, we – at Austin, we played both ways. So, we, I learned how to play. I was a defensive lineman at Austin High School, but, you know – my priority was offense. I was a first team all district offensive lineman. That's where I started. They'd throw me in on goal line sometimes, but it was spot duty. And so I, it wasn't, I was much better at O line than D line. However, I insisted when Austin college recruited me and Austin college is a small private school, probably about 1200 kids. So much smaller than my high school, uh, in Sherman, Texas, 60 miles North of Dallas. And, um, I, I really asked the coaches, can I, I'd like to be a defensive end. You know, I don't feel like I'm big enough. And they, they, 
they acquiesced and they were, they were supportive. And so I came in as a freshman defensive end in Austin college, uh, played in a three, four, my freshman year and a four, three, my, my sophomore year. And I was always a second string. I could never beat out Artie cook. That's my good friend, man. He was a cool, I could just never quite beat him out. He's one grade above me from Lone Oak, Texas. A lot of good athletes come out of Lone Oak, Texas, but, uh, he was a great guy. And I, you know, I was with him. I was bigger, faster, stronger than he was, you know, but he played defensive line his entire life. So he had that it factor that I used to have on the old line where for me, everything was, was mechanical. I was very robotic defensive lineman. You know, Mm -hmm. of course I listened to my coach's technique and I was very a technician in that regard, but I didn't have just, I don't know, the natural instinct or movement to be a great defensive lineman. And so, you know, I, I never, I did not crack the starting lineup, but I I was in the rotation. I I was the number two. I, I was in a rotation. So I played quite a bit. My freshman and sophomore year did. Okay. Junior year, the coaches asked me, Q, you know, would, could, would you be interested in moving to right tackle? You know, I know you have an offensive line background. We, we could, you know, we need, we need help. And again, I was like, I, I was excited. And as soon as I made that switch, man, it just felt like, I don't know. I don't know what the analogy would be, but it felt like uh, being in the right place again. I felt like I was back home Yeah. and it was just so natural for me. And I really, I had a really good season. I really did. And I, I had so much fun. I played well. Um, I, I would pass protection was kind of my forte because I, I was smaller, but I had good feet. So I could always stay in front of the, you know, I just, and I'm not going to blow anybody off the ball. I was never a mauler or anything, but you know, I was just athletic style of offensive line. I was good at pulling on counter, you know, pass protection. That was kind of my things, but um, you know, I, I had a great season. And so going into senior year, the thing that was weighing on me was I was struggling to keep on weight. And I wish I could say that now, but I was the kind of guy that, you know, we had our, our meal card and I go wherever I want, or I go to golden corral whenever I wanted. I was eating, 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 trying. And I, I, when I got, when I played defensive end at Austin college, I was about 230 pounds, 225 in high school, 230 as a defensive end. And I got up to 240 playing O-line. So I was 6'1", 240. That's the biggest I could ever get. And it was really hard to keep that weight on. So I was kind of struggling with that. And plus in my head, there was still that unfulfilled doubt of like, I'm too small to really be a good offensive lineman, even though my coaches graded me out that I was doing good for the team. Um, I just, I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm too small. I want to play tight end. I'd always wanted to do it. And I'm like, now I was kind of feeling like that the end is near. And I was like, this is my last chance. Now or never. I did it, you mm-hmm. know? And this is where, this is where the story where I began to regret it because my coaches were not on board with it. You know, they were telling me like, Q, like you, you're, you're our best offensive lineman. You know, like you had a great season. We need you. Like, why would we move you? Why would you move your best offensive lineman to tight end? Like that makes no sense. And as a coach, why would we do that? I was being selfish. You know, I thought more about my individual success and the team success. And it's something I'm ashamed of, honestly, that I am ashamed of that. And that's why I always told those stories to my kids that you're the, you are the team player until the one day that you're not. And I, that was, that was my senior year for me. And so all the, the goodwill that I felt like I built up over my career and was so proud of, I let it evaporate that quickly because I, I became more about myself than the team. And so anyway, I was like pressuring coach to move me to tight end. And we didn't really have a tight end in the offense. It had been kicked around that maybe we would use a tight end, kind of look more like Harden Simmons, which Chris knows is like a, a good division three program or our good friend, Barry Campbell played football at, but um, it just didn't happen for us. The style of offense, we did not, we did not use a tight end. And so I'd already, I kind of just said to hell with this. So I started transitioning, uh, like my body, you know, I lost weight. Derek Ruthard is my best friend is a quarterback. And so he, we would throw every day. Like I I learned how to get better with my, my hands and everything and run routes. And, um, 
I became a man without a position essentially because the tight end never happened. There was no tight end. And so I, I'd lost too much weight. I wasn't strong enough to really go back to O-line or D-end or anything. And plus they probably didn't want me because they probably thought I was selfish, you know? And so I basically played a H-back position. So here I am one year before I'm the starting right tackle. And the next year I'm the pitch man on option. I, I swear to God, that that's a true story, man. <laughs> And it was just so, I'm almost amazed that I did it in a way. Like I'm kind of, it's kind of proud that I did it. And I was second string. I don't know how the hell I fought my way up to second string, but cause I really, I can't believe I wasn't last string, but uh, I did it. It was good for me as a coach, I guess, to learn a new position, but at the yeah. end of the day, who cares? I got the rest of my life to learn how to coach different positions. I was embarrassed that I was selfish. And so anyway, I just always would tell that story to my players, you know, in the years that followed, but that was a sad way to end a great career, but I don't, I regret it, but it's all part of the learning process. Like I'm not going to beat myself up over it. My head coach, David Norman is a great guy. Um, and I remember we went to a, an event many years later, uh, or a hall of fame induction for our school. And one of my friends was being inducted and I'd had a couple drinks and coach Norman had a couple drinks. And I just, I went up to him and, you know, and I came and he's, Hey Q, you know, and, and he's just so nice. And I said, coach, I'm sorry for all that bullshit. I pulled my senior year. I should have stayed at tackle. And that was cathartic just to say that to him. And he just said, Q, I love you. And he gave me a big hug. And I mean, that, that is just, he's a good coach, man. He's about players. And that's what I learned. Like, I'm not going to lose sleep over it. It's something I'm just going to use as a story to teach my son or any other players, you know, that I'm in, that I come across, but like, just trust the coaches. That's the moral of the story at the end of the day. I should have just trusted my coaches. And they said, Q, you're doing great at right tackle. Don't worry about the weight. You're, you're getting it done. You can do it. I should have just said, yes, sir. But can't change the past. So uh, what, you know, you mentioned like the, you know, like in high school, Coach Ketterman, you'd run through the wall for. So what was the difference between like that relationship that you had your, with your high school coach and your college coaches where you did, you know, think like, uh, I, I want to, you know, I want to pursue my interests. That's a yeah. great question, Chris. And this is not to throw those coaches under the bus because I mean, no, I love no, Coach no. Norman, you know, yeah. my head coach. But I think it was more me than them. I think part of it is like when you're in college, you're just at a different stage in your life too. Yeah, You're a little more independent. And I guess maybe even though I had that bad background, I think through my experience with Coach Kitterman, I'd already kind of found that um, what I was looking for from a father figure of Coach Kitterman. And so in mm -hmm. college, I guess I wasn't seeking it as much. Maybe I wasn't seeking the relationships, but also in Division Three football, you know, and you probably know some of this from talking to coaches, it's, it's, it's very low pay. You know, mm -hmm. you need to, you need to really advance through and become maybe the head coach or move up. But a lot of the lower level assistants at division three, you know, maybe their room and like their board is provided for like their housing and their meals, but like, they're not actually making, that's why a lot of times people say coaches should, if you're going to go the college route, try it when you're young, before you have a family, it's hard to support a family like that. So we would have turnover. You know, we did have a d decent amount of turnover with the, co you know, the assistant coaches, um, you know, at Austin College. So I guess I never, I never built that relationship, that kind of relationship, even though I like them and everything. Um, and it's not, and nothing against them. I would say it's that reason. And then secondly, it was me. Again, just kind of like my dad, like it was my problem. You know, I, I, I just became selfish because I, I think the, the real problem is me worrying about the outside perception. You know, me just thinking because I'm only 6'1", 240, that I, I can't be recognized as one of the better offensive linemen in the league, you know, that, in the conference. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what it was. I wanted to be a guy that became an all-conference player, you know, and it just, 
it definitely didn't happen for me in my senior year, my best chance, my junior year, you know, but I, I, I guess since I did not make it as a junior and I thought I had a good season, maybe that was part of it too. Is like, if I can be a tight end, I can be a great run blocking tight end of my offensive line experience, you know, be one of the best run blocking tight ends. And then, you know, add something in the passing game. It, just, it wasn't there. And it, again, it was me trying to accomplish all these goals that were outside goals. You know, it wasn't about the team goal. And that's something, like I said, something I regret, but I think that is the real reason I, I was searching for where I thought I could achieve, you know, in my last year. Oh yeah. And I think, you know, like your experience, you know, like with the turnover of the coaching staff and, and maybe, you know, not necessarily the lack of connection, but just not as deep a connection. Sure. Yeah. You know, I've heard other, you know, other players have had, especially, and that have played like, especially lower levels, you know, D2, yeah. D3, they've had similar experience where they did, you know, like, like a guy that we've, you know, we've talked about on the show before, you know, as far as like Ridge Point, you know, all time players, uh, Justin Jackson. Yeah. You know, like he talked about his experience and uh, like, you know, because when you think of him, ultimate team guy, yeah. Ridge Point, yeah. um, sold his body out maximized his athletic ability yep. had a great college career, but at the same time, you know, he got there and he realized, you know, like, you know, the guys that he was working for or the, or that he was, uh, the coaches that were coaching him, you know, they had their, their own agenda that they were pursuing. And so he said there was a time that he turned inward as well. And right. Right. Basically turned his training and his development more, you know, selfish or, you know, just, yeah. focus more on himself you know and i think that's a common thing that happens at that level i think it's common now even even with our high school kids because of social media oh yeah i think that affects it affects a lot of our kids more than they, they realize oh yeah I, I i i would totally agree with that and especially even though i think like at rich point especially right now we have a i think we have a very stable coaching staff yeah we're not experiencing a lot of turnover um but there was a time where we were replacing quite a few every year and uh and that allowed for that to be set in for the kids yeah. to start focusing and though and so it's tough as a high school coach to to get through to some of these kids because the because who is the one kid one coach that's consistent for kids whether it's basketball or track or football that they're always going to see and that's their their personal trainer their, yeah. their private team coach person they're paying yeah is, is that becoming because i want to ask this to you guys and just take a quick departure because you know i stopped coaching my last year at at all dean was the 2016 season and so i'm around the game a lot with my broadcasting my friends the podcast i'm around the game but i'm not in there anymore mm-hmm. chris in that time from 26 or at least on the football side now mike i know you can speak to it too on the basketball side but yeah. like from 2016 to 2023 have you seen a dramatic change? Because I know sometimes on social media, you see people talking about it. And I always wonder, like, are they embellishing it? You know, is it really not that bad? Or are, are there big changes, even from when I was coaching, which doesn't feel that long ago? I, I think there have been. Um, and I know, like, VTech will probably be able to talk a lot more about this because, you know, with AAU having a, gr- a great impact on his sport. Um, you know, and football wise, one thing that I think has happened and, and the pandemic did so, this to everything, it accelerated and, and overemphasized things that are, that were just starting to happen. And so when schools shut down and co- school, and we couldn't work with our kids, 
private trainers didn't care. You know, right. <laughs> that was the one thing that they were promoting that they could do is you can go outside, you can go play. So right. what did they do? They go to the fields and they're playing, they're working with their trainers and those guys were, and, and so that was their avenue. And so they were able to get with those kids and kids were able to, you know, work with them even more and more. And so it just, I think, I think stuff like that, uh, that was already beginning, uh, became over, you know, like over emphasized. And now it's one of those things where, you know, there are, there are really good private coaches who, uh, are doing, doing well by the kids and that who we can talk to and trust. And then there's ones that, uh, are conflicting with us and they're, you know, and we're, we're not able to get the message through to the kids because they have so many messages in their head from us, from their coach, from their parents. Yeah. Vitek, what, what do you think? Hey, before Vitek, can I ask one, one follow-up on Chris's point? Because I'm really sure. curious about this. Those coaches that are implanting some of those negative signaling in the kids' heads, what specifically are, what are, what are examples of that? Just because, again, I, I never saw that kind of influence from these these outside coaches like what kind of things are they telling the kids that are kind of conflicting of what you want to get across to them i think there's things like like mostly it's like it's it's more of like team concept type it's like sure, we sure. where especially in football we ask you know what we might ask a kid to play offensive line for example yeah. and classic you know the classic example we've already talked about they don't want to play offensive line they want to play defense they want to play tight end Right. So they, they go and they go to this personal trainer and they're getting trained in their own time how to catch passes. Well, we need them. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, when they come back to us because to put the team in, you know, the best possible situation, that person is our best right tackle or whatever, right. you know? Right. And so yeah. I think it's, you know, it's like a constant, like, yeah, they're, they're mis they're misusing you or, sure. you know, yeah. things like that. Or, you know, if, if you were, if you were here, you could be playing this, you know, and stuff like that. Right. So right. I think that's, that's a pretty, that's a pretty common uh, message that, that they hear. And that you, you even see on Twitter because the kids post their workouts and yeah. you see them training for something that they're, we're not asking them to do. Right. And for me on the basketball side, um, specifically, it's like a lot of players um, when they're playing in the summer, you know, they're they're on teams that are completely different than our high school team. Maybe they're on a team that is full of um, guards that are all start at their school. And so it's the best player from all the schools. And so when they play in the summer, they don't lose. And everything flows because everybody everybody's skill level is so much higher. When you get back to high school, some some of our high school players, you know, they know they're not going to play in college. And so they play during the school year. And once the school year is over, then they go back to being a regular kid. And so yeah. skill-wise, maybe they're not as developed. They're bought into the team. They're going to do whatever for the team. But then the skill, the skilled players who have that dream and aspiration of playing, and they're still working on their game in the summer, they come back and like, oh, well, well you know, this, play, this person doesn't care. Or this person's in the game and they shouldn't be in the game because they don't have the skill to be there. I think that hurts us a lot. Right. And then like with the social media stuff, I mean, promoting individual kids, um, it's something I've shot away from because I'm trying to promote our program yeah. and social media wise. That's how they feel. They get seen, you know, is, is on the Twitterverse, which it, I mean, it's, it's, there's no right answer for that, for promoting kids, but I want to promote the best kids for our program, but I'll promote the program. And, and I've, since I've seen that, I've seen that coach. Like whenever I do like some broadcasting, 
Yeah. Or, you know, I host like the seven lakes podcast and they're, they're all great coaches. But when I, a lot of times when I ask the question, like, would you like to highlight certain kids that have stepped up as leaders? Like they almost always shy away from that. And like yeah. the team concept causes more problems. I, I totally understand that. And I think in general, that is a good, good rule of thumb. That would have been good in 1998, just like it is yeah. now. But like, I don't know. I feel like back in my, and maybe this is me doing a bad job of coaching, but I would talk about some of my, you know, high achievers, I guess yeah. it's a way to stimulate interest and publicity in the program. But I think now maybe it's, that is opening more of Pandora's box of problems yeah. when you talk, but maybe, maybe less so than when I was coaching, even just a couple of years ago, it's that's been accelerated. I think. I think it's changed a lot also since COVID. I don't know what, I just, I feel like our kids are different. Like the first year back, you could tell everybody was quiet. Like even in the class of seniors and there's only 15 kids in the class and we're in class and people are sitting there and no one would say a word. Even we were on block scheduling then. I'm like, okay, guys, let's talk about this. And they would just sit there. Yeah. And like everybody was afraid. And I don't know if that, that's, it hasn't continued because we're, you know, we're back full scale, but things are just all around. I feel like kids are different now. Even me as a teacher, I feel like it's different. I don't know, Chris, you probably feel the same way a little bit. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a disconnect. Um, you know, between, right. Between, I mean, I, I think there's less, you know, like it, there's less buy in, you know, yeah. to the full program. Um, and so, you know, and for, you know, like at Rich Point, you know, during that time, you know, we experienced, in the football program, we experienced a coaching change. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, not that the, I mean, I think we do a great job of building up the team camaraderie still, you know, and, and building up being a Ridgepoint Panther. I think, uh, I think sometimes that there's still just, a, just a, there's just a, some hesitancy to fully buy in to what, the, what we're trying to do as a team. And, uh, you know, and not just be totally about what what we want as, for ourselves, for our individual self. You know? Yeah. So yeah, and I think I think that's I think that's goes into the classroom. I think it goes to their relationships with mm -hmm. other other kids. You know, so they right exactly. They they they're not as connected. They whereas like the rich point that you knew Kovo was i mean we were a full family we were like, absolutely i remember absolutely. when i stepped on campus in year two we were like what a 700 member family maybe yep. you know and then year three we were a thousand member family uh then a 1500 member family i mean it just kept getting you know we were always a family you know always just so tightly connected and every everybody worked together um, we had the, you know, on we all were on the same page, no matter what program we were in. And now, I mean, because, you know, we've grown so much and, um, you know, thing, and things have changed. There's been some different, different uh, turnover and, you know, across the school. And so there's a little bit more like, you know, like a little separation, you know, not as, not as much full family togetherness. Can I, can I put up a hypothesis for you guys? I'm curious how, what you think about this. Cause you actually interact with kids on a daily basis that I'm unable to, but I've learned a lot about social media influencers from my former player, Mike Obi, who I do a lot of podcasting with, and we have a couple of podcasting ventures and he's taught me a lot. And now I think today's kids can actually see an Avenue, a proof of concept of my job can be, you know, generating revenue by creating social media content, getting sponsors. And 
now I'm in the world of podcasting. I understand that model because I I do this for as a passion project. This is not my day job. I work for Dectronics, you know, so this is just for fun. I'm not like counting on this money. But now I understand the concept of if I can get a certain number of listeners to team player podcasts, like I'm going to start making more money. Yeah. And eventually there is a pathway to if we got enough, it could be my full-time job. You know, and I think the kids see that. And so yeah. that's different than anything that any of us grew up with. We did not grow yeah. up with that that competitiveness of I got to get more followers, more followers, more followers. And then there's money tied to it. You know what I mean? Oh, like w- yeah. when we started Facebook, we were just, we remember those like uh, be right back messages. Like when you'd leave your little way message, yeah. like, going to the cafeteria or whatever, you yeah. know, like that's all we cared about was just saying what we're doing or taking pictures of our food early on Instagram, all that <laughs> stuff, right? Yeah. So we never had that pressure. I'm wondering, do you guys see that where these kids are kind of worried about like building their brand and like becoming an, an actual professional social media star? or YouTube star. I mean, do you see some of that? I'm curious. I think, I mean, you sometimes, yes, you do see that. I think it also, I think, like you said, it's, it's not just, it's building their brand, but uh, to me, it's also about uh, the value. Like the, yeah. because, of, because, because, because of what they see other people being able to do, you know, via social media or on YouTube or their, you know, Twitch channel or whatever, that they don't value necessarily what we are doing in the building or on the field as much, you know, because they're like, I can do this myself this way. Yeah. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I I, I agree. And going back to like, um, even with the recognition of individual players, um, they see that that has, like you said, has more value for them to get their stats or whatever posted on Twitter Mm -hmm. than it does for the success of our team um, and that, that gives them a, a feeling like when they get likes or they see so-and-so retweeted me, yes. um, they, they see that they get, um, you know, that makes them feel good. And whenever somebody gives them a compliment necessarily, that's not the same. Um, as far as the making money avenue in Subco, I don't, I haven't heard of any kids really like specifically saying I wanna do that, but I can see how in the coming years, for sure. Just because they right. value that, that like, I mean, it's oh. kind of like an endorphin rush though. Right. Like, I mean, in For a way, sure. like, I mean, Chris, when you start, I mean, I, I know you are the most humble, just, you're just, just a humble guy. You're not, you didn't, you didn't start Texas high school football, Texas high school football chat to become like some, you know, big time social media star. But, but like, he is. when you saw that follower count, like go and go and go, did that give you a little bit of an endorphin rush? Like, you oh, know, yeah, I mean, it does, you know, and you're like, oh my goodness, how can, you know, and then you're, it's like, how do I get more? You know, right. oh my yep. goodness, I'm at 10,000. How do I get to 20,000? Right. You know, I mean, right. it's, yeah, you Who's do. That? You got that one tweet, it, it's, you know, a million likes or whatever. And it's like, oh, wow, my phone is, is going off. You know, I want to do this again, you know. Cause it does, it, it, it's, it is, it is neat to see the connections, you know, and it is, you know, like people that you, that you just looked up to or read about all of a sudden, like did something with you. Right. You know? And, uh, you know, that was, I mean, that, that is a really neat experience. You know, I mean, it, it, it is, I mean, and then, and I do see the value in that, you know, there is the value of connection, Yeah. You know? but it's to me, I think that the disconnect is, you know, is you know misplacing the value of connection for you know for your values you know what i'm saying i agree 
That was good. That was good. Very good. Very good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kovo, let's get back to your coaching. So, I mean, you've mentioned a bunch of different times all about the coaching and stuff. So run us through um, your history of where you started and um, how it went and how you liked it and all that kind of stuff. So I stayed when I finished at Austin College, I stayed for a fifth year to get a master's degree at Austin College. They had a program there, a one-year degree plan. And so in the fall, after I'd graduated, I was a graduate assistant coach for the Austin College football team. And this is pretty cool. I got to meet Ronnie Gage, became our head football coach, and he was famous at Louisville High School up there in the Metroplex, famous option guy. And I'm, I'm sure maybe Coach Fisher, of all the work he's doing on Twitter, maybe if, if, you, if you do talk to like the option guys, they all know this Ronnie Gage. And now his son, James, is the head football coach at Alvin. And, and his so wife was he, here. That's Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Coach Gage. Yep. yep. His wife. Yep. And so, you know, James is running this kind of really cool, different style of offense down there at Alvin. Uh, the same one that his dad won, uh, ran and won, won some state championships. But um, anyhow, so I, I, I coached under Coach Gage for that year. And then the way that our program worked was in the springtime, you either had to go stu- do student teaching, or if you could find a paid internship, you could accept like a paid position, like a full-time position starting in January. And so me and coach Ruthart, Derek Ruthart, were both in this program and we both did it and we both got real jobs. It's like a lot of our classmates were just student teachers. Me and Ruthart actually got jobs. And so we're making That's money. Cool. It's pretty cool. But I got Clearbrook and Derek got Seven Lakes and Katie. And so we both started uh, in that um, you know, and started in January, uh, you know, in our graduate year. And man, I got to tell you, and I always tell people this, like I'm telling Mike Obi, my former player, who's now a teacher, I, I tell them the first year of teaching sucks. Yeah, I think there's no way about it. I mean, if there are people that come in, they're rock stars in it, or they're, or, you know, if they just come right yeah. in and start kicking ass and taking names as a teacher, it sucked. What you year know, was part- that in Brook? Yeah. Was that? What year was that you were at Clearbrook? I guess I that would have been like, oh, Seven, I think I was at Creek then. Yeah, I guess we were right around the same time. And, you know, um, I, of course, I was living at home in Sugarland. So it's like a 45 minute drive just to get to Clearbrook. And, you know, you used to be a college kid. Now you're waking up super early in the morning. And it's a, it's just your first time doing a job is one part of it. But then I'm in Clearbrook. I have no connection here whatsoever. I'm not a coach at this time, which I think probably was a good thing, but I think made it harder in a way because like the kids didn't respect me in the same way that like they would a coach I feel like I feel like coaches are just so uniquely able to build those relationships and have that kind of respect I really hope that hasn't changed I I I know that kids maybe now they're they're focusing on other things but I still hope they love and respect their coaches because I felt like once I became a coach my ability to relate to the kids like shot up the the respect just they just liked me because I was a coach I felt like but anyway that first year at Clearbrook other part was again I'm taking over for a teacher who was fired at mid-year so yeah, you guys know how that you can imagine yeah. what was going on there, right? So I'm taking over these kids that are used to doing nothing. They've had a bunch of subs, you know, for a long time. And so it was just hard. All of it was hard. And at the end of the year, I told my mom, I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to work with kids anymore. I want to go back to school. I want to study something else. I want to work with adults. And she said, Jimmy, whatever you do in life for a career, do it for three years before you quit and try something else. And I said, okay. So you're right. I've, 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 I've wanted to do this when I was an eighth grader. I mean, this was, this yeah. is my dream. And I, I put a lot of effort. I'm in a master's program. I mean, like I, I'm, I've worked hard for this. I, she was right. And I just thought maybe I just need to change the scenery and I want to come back to Fort Bend. I always thought I could get in at Austin high school, my alma mater. And uh, it just never, there was not openings. Kevin Moran, 
was the principal at Clements High School, and he was my assistant principal when I was a student at at Austin. Awesome. Yep. And so I sent him an email uh, one day, and it was so cool because I sent out a bunch of emails and resumes and all kinds of stuff, and I got a I got a response like within five minutes. That's how that's how plugged in this guy was. I mean, he's just that's always awesome. on top of it. And I I wrote an email saying I don't know if you remember me, uh, Mr. Moran, but I was I was a student at Austin High School. You were my assistant principal, you know. And and he goes, of course I remember you. He's like, come in for an interview. And I pretty much got the, I just needed Coach Hume's blessing. I think Mr. Moran basically signed the blank check or whatever. And just as long as I didn't screw it up with Hume, I had the <laughs> job. And luckily, I didn't. Uh, even though Hume is so intimidating, he's just an intimidating guy. So I was really uh, meeting him. You know, was was uh, I was nervous going into it, but then once you get to talk to him, you you let, you let your guard down because he's a nice guy. So I love. I really wanted to work with Coach Hume. I had seen. Let me tell this story. My last year at Austin, we were we were three and seven, and the, we were second to last place. The last place team was Clements. So going into the last game, it was Austin versus Clements for basically the toilet bowl. Right, we were the two worst teams. Yeah. The beautiful, and I love those games. Those are my favorite games to broadcast. I always tell them, give me Northbrook and Springwoods. You know, give me Pasadena and Rayburn. I love those games because that's their Super Bowl. Yeah. And these games always oh, come yeah. down to the wire. And I just, All out. I, love, I love seeing those kids that, that I've been at Aldean where we lose games 80 to 70 nothing and have running clock all the time. I hate that. But when they get to play somebody like them, God, I just love it. And I love making it feel like it's a huge game with my voice and my announcing. And so anyway, that was our that was us that year. We we're the two worst teams in the district, and guess what? The game goes to triple overtime. Oh. You know, Austin wins in triple overtime. We've dogpiled to fifty. Well, anyway, so Clements was. I always kind of looked down on Clements football wise a little bit. They they had a good year um, the year before, but they they were kind of better. And then by the time I was a senior, they were kind of going into a dip. You know, mm-hmm. where they hit some real lows. You know, so Austin wasn't good at football at the time, but. I saw like Clements was good. And this is while I was at college. I'm like looking at these scores and I'm like, who's this Lenoir kid? This Chris Lenoir. He's like, he's, he's all these yards, you know, and, you know, and like, they're, they're really good. And it's Alex Wacha and like all these like weird names. I thought these like these odd names, but they're playing good football. And I was like, there's some new coach there that I, I don't know this whole homie guy. Like, I could not pronounce any of the names of these Clements <laughs> people until I got there, but I'm reading this, the scores. I'm like, wow, Clements is winning. I was like, I want to be a part of that. Because I already knew it was a good school. And so I, I was so happy. I got the job at Clements and instantly everything changed. I got a T Shack, which is great. I think all of you guys that are teachers that's, know that that's like T Shack right now. Yeah, you want that. I think like first instinct is you don't want that, but trust me, you want that, especially at Clements because there's no cell service inside of there. So <laughs> I was in the T Shack, control my AC. And the most fortuitous thing was I was next to a guy named Brett Sniffin, was the guy next to me in the other T Shack. <laughs> and so that changed the whole propulsion of my career you know, but instantly I loved it instantly. All the problems I had managing students and just hating my job and my, my life kind of, cause you know, so much of your, I was spending so much time teaching and preparing at night and stuff. Like it felt like it was my whole life was my yeah. job and everything changed, fell in love with Clements, loved the kids. And I, I would have stayed there forever. And then as history, as you guys know, coach Sniffin gets the job at Ridgepoint. Long story short, it was in the middle of a riff. He basically could not hire. I was probably like his, I don't know, fourth or fifth choice. He wanted me to come to coach offensive line. That was what he saw me as a good young offensive line coach. Like I was, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but it ended up happening to where he could only bring coordinators over and all the guys he wanted couldn't come for various reasons with their teaching field. So he basically could have like nobody and be by himself or take me. And he picked <laughs> me over nobody. So. Yeah. 
so that was uh that was pretty awesome I, i'll never forget i was driving i was driving right by that best buy there in uh first colony and he called me he goes uh Kovo, uh, what do you think about being the defensive coordinator at Ridgepoint? <laughs> it's one of those things like, is this April Fools? Are you are you effing with You're me? Like, what, what? And I was like, excuse me. You know, I was one of the, you know, Coach O'Line, right? And I've never, <laughs> never been, you know. And I, I was twenty four, twenty five years old, you know. And he just said, hey, you know, it. Th- this is what I need to do. Is I have some hiring setbacks. Um, you know, we have two years till we start varsity. I can work with you. He goes, the most important thing is you're a good coach. You work hard and I trust you. Like you're going to get better. You know, I will help you. Like, don't worry about your experience. Like I, I just need you. Cause I can trust you. I know you're going to work hard. And I said, yes, sir, let's do it. So that's how it started. I share all the time. I was a very poor defensive coordinator. The first, including our first varsity year. I feel, I apologize, coach Fisher, putting the team in bad positions. There were so many games we lost in shootouts because of me. I was not prepared. I had a good off season. I've told this story where me and Ruth are, were the only people that showed up at this clinic at GHFCA clinic in Port Arthur coach Elliot Allen at Stratford. He's now an 80 in the hill country, but he is first class. He taught me that whole defense. Mm-hmm. Every question I had about that Stratford defense, he taught me, we adapted a lot of it mixed in a little bit of Klein Collins mixed in a little bit of Laporte, a little bit of Katie. And we had our Ridgepoint defense, but finally we had an identity and that's when we started playing good football defensively. But that that's 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 my coaching career. So loved being at Clements. Had the opportunity to come with Coach Sniffin to Ridgepoint, and um, we were really 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 good. We're having a twelve and zero season. Uh, the what we always did was the day of the game, Coach Sniffin would take Coach Darnell and, and myself to lunch at that Hogs and Chicks in, at the front of Sienna. I don't know if that still exists or not, but it doesn't actually. Sadly, oh, it's closed now, uh, like in the past year. Yeah, yeah, but that that was our pregame routine. So we'd go there, we'd have lunch and kind of talk about the game and just let you know last minute preparations, just kind of getting ready. And one day Coach Sniffin looked at me and Bobby and he said, you know, you guys need to start looking like we've caught lightning in a bottle. Who knows if it'll ever be this good again? Like, cause you know, we're getting a lot of buzz, you know, and it's like, now's your chance. Like you should go, you know? And that's what I always respect about Coach Sniffin. You know, he was not a guy trying to hoard his coaches. I mean, he wanted us to succeed. Um, and so Bobby and I both, that's the first time I didn't really look at job boards. The only time I looked at job boards was looking at the beginning to get to Clements. Like yeah. I never logged into the, the THSCA website and look at job boards after that. I was asked to come to Ridgepoint and then he instructed me to apply for Aldine or not Aldine specifically, but he said, look around. So I looked and for me, you know, me and Bobby were both applying at the same time. Luckily we did not apply for the same jobs. Uh, I think he might've applied at like made Creek or something first. And of course he always kind of wanted Clements, which worked out, but like, I was different. I wanted something new. I've always, you know, and Coach Fisher knows I'm kind of wired a little bit differently. I've always been a little bit different. So I kind of really wanted like an underdog kind of story. And I just was really drawn to Aldine. Uh, they had Nimitz High School and Aldine both open. I, I got to admit, I initially, I kind of was like hoping they picked me for Nimitz because I saw like a, quite a bit of talent, I thought, returning. And, you know, and I, I really like what I saw. A lot of good players returning. But, you know, Aldine too, I was like, I really like that too, because I love the history. I'm a history buff and I love the history of the Aldine Mustangs. And uh, that was my first move. You know, I'm wearing this Columbia blue yeah. Aldine Mustangs Jersey yeah, here. The, Aldine I, jersey. the one thing I took, but when they were rock and roll in the nineties, they wore this Columbia blue. And that's the same time with the love you blue Houston Oilers. And over time they switched to Royal blue. And I don't know why exactly, but that was my first order of business is like, we're bringing back the, the 1990s Aldine uniform. And that's what we did. And I thought we, you know, I enjoyed that part, that part of it and get, welcoming back some of the players from the nineties teams. And I got to meet coach Bill Smith. 
the legendary coach, you know, and uh, he was just awesome. He was so thankful. He's just like, thank you for leading the program and all your hard work. He was just a great guy. So that was Aldine. Um, I, I'm sure you probably want to know what happened. Why did I leave? Yeah. And, you know, I, that was one of my questions. I just, yeah, <laughs> well, I was really enjoying it. You know, my, my, I always tell people my career coaching record was two and 18. Okay. So when I hear people that have 700 career victories, I'm just like, I know how hard it was to get two of those suckers. Yeah. I have two game balls in my weight room. It's kind of funny. The first one was coach Kobo's first win Northbrook high school, you know, whatever, 2015. The other one, it says coach Kobo's proudest win. You know, that's, that's the year, that same year we beat a playoff team. We beat Nimitz and they went to the playoffs. So I was like a, two, awesome. a one win team at the time, beat a playoff team. I always remember that. I could have also signed that coach Kobo's last win. Little did I know, <laughs> little did I know that the next season I would win, we would win zero games. Uh, and then that would be the end of my career as a head coach. But um, I always kind of thought that was funny. I've got the game ball for both my wins, but uh, you know, I loved being the coach of the Aldi Mustangs. I really did. And I, you know, talking to my Ridgepoint guys, I mean, they, they saw, I was happy and I was vibrant, but the athletic coordinator piece for me weighed me down tremendously. I don't think, I think if I could go back now with what I know now and being older at 39 years old, I was 30 at the time. Um, I think I could do a much better job just with experience and, 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 you know, yeah, experience, age, knowledge, you know, Mm -hmm. but I could not, I really struggled working more with adults, managing the other sports, dealing with, and it, it really was difficult for me. And maybe I never saw everything at Ridgepoint because Coach Sniffen bore, you know, bared that burden. But at Ridgepoint, I was used to like extremely good camaraderie amongst all the coaches, yeah. especially on our football staff, which our football staff at Aldine was excellent. But like even the other coach, like you're, look, look at you two. You guys are best yeah. of friends here and you coach two different, totally different sports. You know, like I was used to that. I was really tight with Terrence Plowden, you know, or, you know, and coach Kubasek, I worked with and all the basketball coaches or coach Sanders, you know, you know, and, and all, all the coaches out there from other sports, like I was close with all of them. And so to suddenly get to this environment was just, it just felt real. There's a lot of contention, contentiousness. Yeah. I could just feel it. You could feel it in the air, just yeah. this kind of cloud that hung over. And granted all, we were all losing for the most part, aside from uh, soccer, you know, and it was just really difficult. So everybody, and as they should, they're fighting for their kids. They're fighting tooth and nail for everything against each other, for resources or sharing of athletes, or gym time, this, that, and the other. And it, it's kind of like what Coach Fisher described with like the kids nowadays not buying into the team. Yeah, That's how I felt. In my mind, always being kind of, except for that one fupa that I had in my senior year of college, I'd always been a team player. I, I hope Coach Fisher would say that as a coach, Kovo was considered a team player on the staff and everything like you know I appreciate that man and it's like I'd always kind of been like that and been around guys that were like that and so it was really difficult for me to come into a situation which wasn't quite like that and I understand lots of the reasons and we were blessed at Ridgepoint with all all the support all that kind of stuff but I just kind of struggle with that aspect of it really a lot you know and I always say this now I think a big problem with me at the time I was a bachelor you know I I wasn't married I didn't have kids and so my job kind of became my entire identity. And I think that's, a, I think that was a bad thing for me. You know, I think now if I could do it over and I've got my wife and my son, Bo, like, I just know when, when, the, when, the, when it's over for the day, like I have priorities to focus on now that I didn't have at the time, you know? And so I just wasn't the same person, man. Everybody said that about me. I'm like the first year I really came in with the, the energy that I had at Ridgepoint, M- my interview at Aldine, that the title of my presentation was positive energy. 
I honestly believe that. Like, that's the way I led the defense at Ridgepoint. Like, I believe that was my, that was my shtick or whatever you want to call it. That was my thing. And I wanted to try to bring that. And I, I, I thought I brought it pretty good in that first year. Like I said, we beat a playoff team. We, I thought we really achieved, but I felt myself slipping as, as year one turned into year two. I, I, I wasn't the same person. I was jaded. I was angry. I was, I wasn't healthy in that sense of like, just, you know, just big bags under my eyes and always angry and just, you know, fatigued and I, all that kind of stuff. I wasn't this, and people would tell me, you know, like Kobo, like you've, you've changed a lot. You know, I wasn't the same person as I was when I showed up, you know? And so I was starting to kind of get worried about that. And being a head coach had always been my dream. And I did it. You know, I can say that I did it and I, I love it. I don't regret it, but I just kind of felt like this role isn't for me. You know, I think maybe it could be if I did it again, but like, honestly, I think my best times is being an assistant coach at Ridgepoint or Clements. Like I, I like that kind of role. So people ask me, would you, would you ever go back to coaching? I said, absolutely. I would definitely consider it. I really like what I'm doing now. Cause I can really support and like publicize my friends that are coaching. I really love doing yeah. this, but if I went back as a coach, I don't, I don't aspire to be another head coach. I always joke around. I've got a two and 18 career record. Who the hell would want me <laughs> anyway, but you know, I think that ship has sailed, but you know, I, that, that's what happened fellas. You know, I just, I think the athletic coordinator piece, it takes a certain person to be cut for that. You know, yeah. a sniffing is cut for that. You know, like <laughs> yeah. that, that, that I have a different personality. I have a different style to where I think I'm more of like, uh, you know, I'm one of the cooks in the kitchen, not the chef maybe, you know, and, uh, I think I could do, like I said, second time around, I think I could do better, but I, I, I didn't, I don't think if it was my fit. So I decided, you know, that I wanted to try something different. Um, my, my wife, uh, you know, was in sales. And so I felt like that's something I wanted to give a try to and have that challenge. And so I did many sales jobs. I always tell people that are looking to get out of education, like, be careful. The grass is not always greener on the other side. Yeah, that's, that was my next question. Like, yeah. what's Go the ahead. positives yeah. and negatives? What are the positives and negatives about being out of it? The positives, the positives to me is it's a little more of like a nine to five kind of job. You know, we're teaching by the nature of it, coaching. You, even though now having a wife and kid, I would do better at trying to shut it off. But you have those relationships with the kids. When you have a, a parent problem come up or something, it is going to, it's hard to put it away completely. Yeah. You it know, is. so selling scoreboards, it's kind of, it just, it's, you know, we work within the business hours. And that's why I've liked it. It's not like I'm just going home and I, I you know, just doing nothing. Like I, I, when at times that I'm not with my family, I am broadcasting games or podcasting or, you know, doing that side of it. So it's just allowed me to pursue some of my hobbies that I like, like this podcast. Yeah. I could never do that if I was a coach, I wouldn't have that kind of like schedule, you know? And I think that one thing I, I, when coaching, you know, you're focused on your team. I like being able to kind of zoom out and have like a 50,000 foot perspective of lots of teams. Cause I just like talking to good coaches. And so I've enjoyed that, like not being focused on my team. Now I'm just like talking to coaches, learning, meeting all these new people. And I just really enjoy that. So that's what I like about it. But most of the jobs that I did with the exception of Dactronics, I would, I would stay as a teacher. I'll tell you that right now. If I yeah. didn't have Dactronics, I'd be, I'd be an assistant coach somewhere. I, 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 I prefer teaching to most private sector jobs that I've had. I feel very strongly about that. Um, I, you know, and the people bring up pay it just in my purse. This is just, just coach Kobo talking. Yes. Of course we want it to be higher. It should be higher for the amount of impact that we have, but I think the pay is actually good. If you go to a lot of private sector jobs, I think everybody thinks when you go to these jobs, you're making six figures. Those are hard to come by. You yeah. know, I've never had them. In, in the private sector jobs I've worked, you know, and so 
Like I don't make more money now that I'm selling for Dactronics than when I was coaching, you know? So it's, to me, it's just, it's just a life. It's a time thing is what I like about it. Um, And I think the only thing that I would say, like the money isn't what bothers me about teaching and the way teachers are treated, but it's like the other responsibilities. Like if you're not getting supported and, and you're just being no support of parent problems or student problems, that's when I think you should definitely consider maybe you have to get out. Right. If, if they're not going to support you, but I think the money personally, I always, I was always comfortable, but again, it's your lifestyle, right? It's like, what things do you want to buy with the money? You know, if you get a six figure job, you might just buy, buy more stuff. And actually now you're in more debt. You know what yeah. I mean? So that's just my thoughts on it, man. I love being a teacher. I really hope that people, I think teaching sometimes has a negative connotation. I just disagree. I, I, I just disagree. I really do. Cause sometimes people will ask me, Oh, you're, you're in sales now. You must be raking in the bucks. Like it's not true. You know, I, I, I just, uh, that's what I tell people is like, just don't focus on the money so much, you know, focus on your happiness. You know, think about all the people that, you know, we've lost like 2020 was like a year of this incredible amount of like big time famous celebrities passing away. Right. Like yeah. your health is the most important thing. Yeah. Does it matter the number of zeros on your paycheck or whatever? Like you need to be happy with what you're doing. And so you can spend your, the time you have on earth with the things that matter in your life. And yep. that's what I got out of teaching, man. That's my biggest regret. What I, what do I miss about teaching Kobo? You know, it's, it's the relationships, like the kind of relations I have with a Mike Obi and a Jay fan. I'm never going to, this is the sad part for me. I'm never going to create new ones of those. Yeah. It ends with them, you know, and my kid, the kids from Aldine, like that's where it ends for me. And that's kind of sad. And I'll always, I'll take those friendships and relationships with those former players to my grave or whatever, but I'm never going to create more. And that's where I'm jealous of coaches. They're constantly getting a new influx. You know, it just begins anew, you know, with new kids. So you were, you were talking earlier, just going back to coaching, how, um, and me and Chris have talked about this, about how when we're all connected and all on the same pages as coaches from different sports, it just makes everything feel better in the school in general. Like, I think me and Fisher have talked about that a lot. Like, the more that we're connected and on the same page, it's, and it's hard, it's, it's hard to do a lot of times. Um, yeah. I just, I just wanted to make that comment. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, like the times that I've like, I've been really lucky and Chris can attest to this, like Clements and Ridgepoint, especially like just talking football, we were incredibly well-connected. I don't think that's normal. What we, what we saw, what we, what we witnessed, like having the parties after, after the games, looking back on, I'm like, man, how do we do that? Cause we had to be so dog tired and we had to go in the next day. But at the end of the day, like that's, I think that's what made us a good staff is spending that time together. I think is a great investment. When I went to Aldine, I try, I, I, we did do it some, but not every game, you yeah, know? It's and, hard. Yeah. I kind of wish maybe, maybe I should have worked harder to try to push that we'd still do it. Cause it, it's important. I really do think so. Because you're right. Like when the when we're all pulling together, man, it just makes it so much fun. Oh, it is. And and that, you know, like I talked about this with Bobby as well. I think, you know, like there was a that moment in time too. I mean, it wasn't just like us being at the school. There was a it was a unique alignment of the stars of yeah our fit, you know, like how old all of us were, yep. our you know, how the age of our kids. You know, you know, our wives, I mean, just everything aligned all together. And yeah. it, it's, you know, you don't, you don't work with, you don't get to work with those people and those staffs your entire career. You know, I mean, you can be on good staffs, 
you know, you're, you know, like I've been, I've been t- coaching and teaching now for 22 years. And I would say that window of time is, I would, I would put the, that, you know, the, the first, you know, those early years of Ridgepoint and, uh, you know, the Clements that, that overlap of time. Yeah. So at the middle point, you know, you know, seven to 10 years where we had just had a magic, you know, just to, and not, yeah. and it, and like you said, it expanded beyond football. It was, it was our families. It was the rest of the school. I mean, you know, like, oh man, probably, yeah. you know, shouldn't talk about something you know, on the podcast, but like the, like Lori McLaughlin's parties, you know, right, the, sure. parties, but yeah. I mean, still, I mean, those things brought us all together and that wouldn't happen. Uh, that didn't happen every year at every school. That's right. You know, we were, you know, there was something, something special about just the way we all, you know, came together. I think, and uh, it does. Like like Vitek says, it it, it makes the biggest difference. It trickles down to the whole school. Yes, yep. it really does. You know, I read something somewhere where, like, it, basically, like if the coaches, if the coaches at the school are happy and all into the school, then everybody yeah. is happy and all into the school. Students, everybody. You know, it's it's so important. I only got one more question for you, Gobo. Okay. I sent this one to you. So you asked me who my top five players are in Ridgepoint history. So who are your top five interviews in your in your podcast that you've interviewed? Oh man, I like this one. But let, let me. I, you also had me uh, some funny stories. You oh yeah, me. my bad. Oh I'm yeah. Put those in, then I'll finish with with my top five. All right. But okay, I don't have too many crazy ones, but i did get a picture at a u of h basketball game uh with ed oliver who's you know played at spring west field and he's a first round draft pick for the buffalo bills and this is my opinion whenever i've seen pro athletes up close because i've seen him i've seen adrian peterson one time when i was running at at the track at heights high school and -hmm. i've seen jj watt at the grocery store to me like people always talk about how massive these guys are i actually kind of feel the opposite like i feel like when i see them they're actually like more athletically built than I would have imagined. Like, you know what I mean? And because mm-hmm. I think they're incredible athletes. They're not just muscle bound freaks. Like they, they are athletes. They are fast. They are agile. And I think also those guys have the ability that depending on when they're on the off season, they can quickly pack on more muscle. So maybe I caught them in kind of a cut phase or whatever, mm-hmm. but that kind of surprised me. Like Ed Oliver, like he kind of looked more like a linebacker to me, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, he, he looked just like a linebacker rather than a guy that can mix it up in the interior of a defensive line. So that was a surprise. With the Super Bowl most recently of Jalen Hurts playing so well for the Eagles, I coached against Jalen Hurts my first year at Aldean uh, when he oh. was playing for Channel View. His dad, Avarion Hurts, is the Channel View head coach. That was my career high for most ever points given up in a game, and I'm about to read oh. it. You, <laughs> you guys always laugh. I'm famous for being the guy that would try to go for shutouts in basketball games. I, I would play for shutout. I'd try to get shutout quarters. We lost to Channel View 82 to 14. Oh, my. This is like my third game, my coaching career. I had been brought over. You know, I'm supposed to be this defensive guru from Ridgepoint, you know, leading this great scoring defense at Ridgepoint. And we gave up like 70, 70, 82 in the first three games. I'm like, I'm going to get fired. I, I was like, I, I'll be, I'm, I will be back at Ridgepoint. I will be coaching inside linebackers under, under Jimmy Hammond. You know, or if I can yeah. hear, or maybe I'll be coaching the freshman B team at Ridgepoint. I don't know. But like, I, I ain't going to be here much longer. So that was a rough start to my uh, head coaching career. And then, 
for Friday Night Lights fans out there, I know Jerry Edwards, you know, is a good friend of ours, the big time Friday Night, Friday Night Lights fan, both the movie and the TV show. One day I was at a bar in Sugarland. Might have been with Ruthard, I don't know, but I was sitting at the bar and this guy sits next to me and I started talking to him and I, I put it two and two together. He was on the Friday Night Lights TV show. And he was a kind of very small character. But if, if you remember mm. the girl, Becky, Becky Sproles, that started like in season four and five, okay. her dad was a truck driver. I met this guy. So this was a guy that, and for me as a Friday Night Lights dork, like that was so cool. So we talked about the show and he told me kind of like, you know, who was the most like high maintenance on the cast and stuff, you know, that kind of stuff. So, so that, that was a lot of fun, but okay. My top five. Present company not included. You guys are always, of course, my top five, but I figure I should remove your two episodes just to, you yeah. know. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. But I'm, <laughs> I'm going to start in, uh, I'm going to start with the, uh, from the beginning and work my way towards more current episodes. I have five of them. Four of them are within the first 15 episodes. Wow. Oh, wow. Four of my five are within the first 15. I think we just really, I think just the excitement at the very beginning, not that I'm not excited now, but like, it was just cool, like formulating the show and kind of going through it and it growing organically. So those, those first few episodes really have a special place for me, but episode number two, Adam Ramirez, he's the offensive coordinator at Houston Waltrip high school in HISD. He's also the head girl soccer coach. The thing I liked about Adam, he was very candid and sharing with me that his, his mother uh, was an alcoholic, you know, and drug abuser. And his dad ended up going to his dad's in, in prison right now. He's going to be released sometime shortly, but just his ability. So kind of like myself, but even like taking to another level, the kind of trauma that he experienced, I really re appreciated his candor and I respected it to have the, you know, the courage to kind of talk about that kind of stuff. He does it very openly for the same reasons I do, but like he shares that with his kids, you know, at Waltrip. And the thing I love about him too, is he's the offensive coordinator on the football team. But kind of the way that I prided myself, he loves his girls' soccer team. He is – it is not just picking up a paycheck, coaching a second sport, rolling the balls out there. Mm -hmm. He loves it, and he gives everything he got to those girls, and they're a really good program. And so Adam Ramirez stood out to me as somebody really cool. He had a really funny butt-kicking story. You know, I, was, I always loved those. And so, yeah, Adam Ramirez was my first one. Episode number seven, Ben Moran. Ben Moran is an Austin College alum. He now coaches up in the Metroplex. But the thing I love about Ben Moran, and this is just Austin College people. I mean, I, I know all the Ridgepoint guys will laugh. You can kind of tell that me and Derek Ruthard are kind of wired different. That's Austin College. There's <laughs> just something about Austin College, guys. We're just a little bit different. And so talking to Ben Moran, who's in his early 20s, or he's in mid-20s maybe, and I'm pushing 40, I was like, I know this guy. He's, yeah. he's me 15 years ago. Yeah. And, and, and I, I've interviewed Austin College alums that are 60, 50s, and they're the same guy as Ben Moran. And so that was just kind of cool as a guy that did go to a private liberal arts college just to see, like, and you guys will see this with your kids. Like, when you see a certain kid that's just kind of wired, like, they're kind of dorky and just different, like, you may want to send them to Austin College. I'll probably <laughs> enjoy it. But uh, that's what stuck out to me for Ben Moran. He had a great episode. And it was kind of, oh, it was cool. We played against Ben Moran because he played for Tom Ball Memorial. That's Chris right. Fisher will laugh. That was the moment I thought I was going to be decapitated by Coach Sniffin. Because uh, <laughs> I arranged the bus ride from hell. And yeah. uh, one of many times I thought I'd be fired on the spot in my coaching career. That was <laughs> definitely one of them. Um, literally showing up to the stadium maybe an hour before kickoff. Uh, so that was pretty crazy. 
my heart sunk when I knew we're going to Tomball on the northwest side of town. And why are we passing the Galleria right now? <laughs> it's like, what is going on here? Yeah. Um, episode number 14. Got to give it up to Brett Sniffin. Uh, just my, my mentor, a guy that took a shot on me. I think a guy that's really misunderstood a lot of times. Uh, he is the all-time record holder for most downloaded episode. And so he's right now he's at 158 listens, which is, I think good for a show of our size. It's just getting yeah. started. And so he yeah. is, he is the number one all time. So obviously whatever it is about him, whether you love him or you maybe people that hate him, his haters maybe turned tuned in, but uh, he, he's, he get, he garnered a lot of listens. So it's the most ever downloaded program in, in show history. And like I said, I think he's misunderstood. You know, I think a lot of people see the, the theatrics on the sideline and, and throwing the big t- fits and tantrums at officials and stuff like that. And I, I think they may uh, have a certain opinion about him. And yeah, Co- Coach Sniffin isn't everybody's, he's an acquired taste. Let's put it that mm. way. You know, I talked about him in one of my recent episodes with Mike Obi. Like there were times where Coach Sniffin honestly humiliated me at practice. And I, I'm just, I'm being dead honest with you. Like I felt humiliated. I didn't feel valued. I mean, I, I like, I, I'm a grown man. I feel like I'm just being, you know, just lambasted here. But, and there's always a but, at least for me, I understood it. I yeah. understood what he was trying to do. We had, and he built up the trust with me or we had these conversations where he'd tell me, you know, end of the year evaluations or, we, or if we were out of lunch or something, Kobo, I know I'm hard on you, but I just do it because I know you can take it, you know? And some people may be wondering, well, just because, you know, this, you trust this guy and he's your friend, it doesn't mean you can just abuse him. Well, that, I don't really see it like that. I understand from sitting in that chair, it's a high pressure job. And there are times when you are extremely stressed and maybe you want to let some steam go and you're looking at your staff. Who can you, I was that guy most times, but I understand it. Now, granted, he had to do the job of making me trust him. If I hated him and I didn't have that trust, I would have, I would have just left. And I wouldn't have performed for him. Right. But he had that trust with me. I understood why he was doing it. So it worked well. And I always think about if coach Sniffin had just been buddy, buddy with me, I would have let up my preparation on the defense. Yeah. Every time that I went into practice, because it kind of felt, and I don't know, Fisher, if you felt this way, but it felt to me like even though Sniffin is the head coach and he's supposed to be neutral, I felt like he was a part of the offensive staff. You know, <laughs> that's how it felt to me. Is maybe I'm biased as a defensive guy, but I felt like he kind of sided with the offense. And so to me, every single practice became a competitive situation where he was mm-hmm. competing against me, I felt like. And so I, I knew that I could very easily be embarrassed if there was something not right or not ready. So it's always avoiding a blow up of coach Sniffin, but that was, I think by design for him to just raise that level, right? Iron sharpens iron. He didn't want me to ever feel comfortable is how I feel. And if he might tell you different, maybe next coaching school, how I'll have a beer and listen to this episode. He can tell you what he, what really he was thinking, but you know, I think he's, he just wanted to keep me on edge to make sure I kept the, 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 the attention to detail high on defense. I think that he did it. So kudos to coach Sniffin most downloaded episode. And I think he, I think he's a great coach and I'm not, I'm not surprised Belton, you know, had a great season this year. Episode 15, and this is a guy you, you'll know well, Coach Vitek. You're one of your competitors, Quisha Dickerson, mm-hmm. Fort Ben Austin High School girls basketball coach. And this is one thing I've loved about the show. We're over 50% football. I don't love that. I want to change it. I want to get more of other sports, but I've, I've made an effort to try to find other sports as well. Love yeah. talking to Quisha on the girls basketball side. She's a former coach of the year at Austin High School. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just loved her perspective. I loved her perspective. I love her openness. I love how she's the first coach that kind of said like 
she was very successful at Lamar Consolidated. She ended up going to suburban school in, in, in Cyprus area, and it was not a good fit. You know, and this was a pretty high profile school. And she just said that for whatever reason, she could not mesh with the parents. The parents did not accept her and her style, and it never was a perfect marriage. And she felt like as soon as she moved to Fort Ben Austin, she was born again. And she yeah. kind of found that right fit where her talents fit in. I loved Aldine High School. I don't know that I was the best person to lead them. You know, I, I, I just, I think there are just certain fits sometimes. I think I, I more of my background, I, I you know, I, I, I related really well with the Ridgepoint kids and, and, and gave them good leadership. I don't know if I did it the, enough, you know, for, for my time at Aldine. I was not happy with obviously the results. I blame myself for that. And I feel like now a guy like Cirillo Hedo, I know you've worked with as well, Chris, like, I think he's such a great leader for Aldine. And I just think that like, again, it's just finding the right mixture um, in every program. And Quisha is the first person I talked about that. Cause that's not easy to say. Yeah. That's not easy to say that I wasn't the right fit for a place. And it's not, she's not necessarily blaming herself. It's just the reality of it's all about finding that perfect fit. Mm-hmm. I love her, her candidness of that. I, that. That always stood out to me. She's the only person that's really kind of said that to me ever. And so Quisha Dickerson is a good one. And the last one, episode number 51. So big jump here. Andres Gomez, the head football coach for the Northbrook Raiders. This is one I've gotten several text messages from friends after this episode saying, wow, Kobo, that was a good episode. So that kind of stood out to me. Um, I've always had an interest in Northbrook High School. We used to play them, Chris, you know, in district. And it's just a school where they've always struggled. They're one of the few teams in 5A, 5A slash 6A football history that has never made a playoff appearance. And they opened, I think, in the late 70s. And it's, you know, Spring Branch ISD is a, a district that has success, you know, often, but Northbrook's just never been able to do it. And I've always found them an interesting, you know, kind of a case study. But anyway, Andres Gomez is just one of those guys that like, you're never going to find somebody has bad things to say about him. You know, he is not divisive. Everybody loves him. He's just super positive, And I just love his commitment to that program. He got his first win of his coaching career this season against my Aldine Mustangs. Um, but it was a long time coming. He's gone through a lot of struggles. And I, that's what I found from being in those situations at Aldine. I started networking with other coaches that were struggling. I talked to Dave Handel at Galena Park. He's now the head coach at Tomball. They made the playoffs last year and won, a, won some upset games and advanced in the playoffs. Um, I think of David Wilkinson, who was at Baytown Lee for a time. I think of all these coaches that I, that I networked with. And what I found is these schools that are going 0-10, 1-9, 2-8, they have good coaches there. When I was an assistant, like at Ridgepoint, and we would go watch, maybe getting ready for the playoffs, we go scout a game. Sometimes I'd see teams like performing so badly, and I gotta admit, I I, I look down a little bit and kind of like, what's going on there? Well, why, why why such bad performance? And I guess I just now I understand there's just so many factors that go into it, and yeah. I understand that you know sometimes these places are struggling, sometimes there are coaching issues, but there are also really great coaches there. So I I just I've really enjoyed getting to find what I like I find as these diamonds in the rough. I love finding these coaches that are going 0 and 10, but I'm like, if you put this guy in some other situation, he would lead them to, to championship. You yeah. know what I mean? And I really enjoy that. It's kind of one of my favorite things to do in this. And uh, so yeah, Andres Gomez fits that description. He's a heck of a coach. And uh, yeah, that's my five. Sweet. Those are all good episodes. I I know like, I, I, I enjoyed listening to a lot of those. And I, th- I think coach Moran was my first one that I listened to for a, uh, of team player. And I could like, you, you mentioned the connection with him and you could definitely like immediately 
since there was a connection, you know, right. and I, I don't even, I, I felt like y'all like met and eat, eat lunch every week. Right. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Those are, those are good. Those are good episodes. Well, man, this this was a special treat. I mean, we had a great episode today. I hope the fans enjoy it. Maybe this will be. Uh, maybe I can pass Coach Sniffin for most. Of yeah. I, I don't think so. Nobody's gonna nobody's gonna care as much about what I have to say as, as, uh, as Coach Sniffin. But no, nah, man, this was a fun episode. If you've enjoyed it as much as we have, please take a moment to give us that five star rating that drives up the charts so more people can hear these stories of coaches making a difference. Hit the follow button to subscribe and hear new episodes as soon as they come out each week. And follow me on Twitter at Coach underscore Kovo. That's Coach underscore K O V O. You can hit us up at teamplayerpodcast at gmail.com. And we lift up our own here inside the Team Player Nation. So give me suggestions. People you you know. Um, like I said, we have a loyal fan base. So reach out to me anytime, Twitter, email. Let's keep let's keep sharing these stories. As always, the cover art and music for the Team Player Podcast is provided by two of my former players. Cover art is by Kaiser St. Cyr, the candy man himself. Uh, yeah, he, he, he drew the great uh, cover art that we have there. It's all Kaiser. So if you have art needs, please reach out to myself or him. And then our intro and exit music is one more good enough for Avrion, and that's Dominique Williams, a star cornerback from Clements High School. But uh, the music comes from his self-titled debut album. You can find his music on all platforms by searching for Avrion. That's A-V-R-I-O-N. All right, Coach VTech, Coach Fisher, thank you so much for putting me on the hot seat and asking me all these great questions today. This was a real treat. Thank you yeah, for having me. It was a lot of fun. It was, I enjoyed this, uh, this trip and this opportunity to talk to you and uh, interview you a little bit oh man totally agree dude this, this is a lot of fun can't wait to listen to it but thank you so much to all the team players out there for your support and we'll catch y'all down the road it always feel like i need one more boy and one more line record the track just one more time my family think i bump my head Lost my mind and sharing them. I'm just fine. I'm good enough, but I need one more boy and one more line. Record the track just one more time. My family think I bump my head. Lost my mind and sharing them. I'm just fine. I'm good enough, but I need one more boy and one more line. Record the track just one more time. My family think I bump my head. Lost my mind and sharing them. I'm just fine. I'm good enough. I'm just fine. I'm good enough. But you be told I need some therapy. Initially, ain't do it voluntarily, but now I got a legacy. 